Sport has the power to change the world. Welcome to Telling Our Football Stories. My name is Boise Kumalo, and my guest today is Nax Cameron. So, Nax, what was it like growing up in Jamaica? Hey, Boise. Um, man, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, I would say I always wanted to find a ball, man. You know, if I could reflect on my, uh, my time in Jamaica, I just think back to, like, the, the different communities I would be, like, walking to or little neighborhoods I would walk to to find where kids were playing. You know, that was always my thing was to find where the ball was playing. And, you know, for me, I always had a best friend whoever had a ball at that time. You know, so if you had the best ball in the community, yeah. we were friends, you know, and I'm saying, and once your ball was messed up, someone else has a ball, we got to go work with them and be best friends with them to go play, you know. So Jamaica, I remember a lot of fond memories of just a lot of playing, um, you know, is nonstop playing. But it was very different than how kids grow up here, you know, and how they play here, you know, in households, kids have 10 soccer balls. Yes. You know, you got you you got one soccer ball for an entire community in, 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 in Jamaica, you know, so it's a little different. And and even that mindset or how things are constructed changed who I was even as a player, you know, and we can even get into that. But uh, yeah, no, Jamaica is a special place, man, is a special place. And it helped my soccer grow growing up there for sure. So w- when you were playing in Jamaica, did you play for a club team or was it just uh playing on the streets with your friends? Yeah, all streets, man. So I came I came to the United States when I was about nine. Okay. So I my my early recollection of playing was right around three, four years old, you know, and, and that was just as a kid trying to just mess around as much as possible with the ball because that's what my uncles were doing or that's what my dad was doing. So, um, yeah, it was just all street ball. You know, I didn't really get into organized stuff until I got to the United States and, you know, it was more of like 11 years old and stuff like that. I started to get into it. Outside of that, it was always individual, always just field, just playing. Right. Yeah. No, I I know uh, growing up in South Africa, man, I also played street soccer, but I did not yeah. have boots or anything. Sometimes I end up playing barefooted. I mean, was it the same in Jamaica? Oh man, that's a given. You know, my my first pair of cleats, like I said, I didn't get till um, I was playing formally in in the United States. So yeah, it's all barefooted, and actually, that's what we preferred in Jamaica. Yeah. You know, when you're wearing shoes, it's like that's a problem because you don't feel connected to the ball, man. So, you know, yeah, it was, it was always barefooted for me. I'm sure it was the same for you. And when you run around barefooted, you almost create your own shoe with your feet, you know, because your feet are so hard. So you almost don't even need shoes at that point, you know, and and those are hours and hours and hours of playing barefooted. You know, you might even scrape your toe a couple of times, but you got to get going again. So, yeah, all barefooted, man. Similar to you. Yeah, all right. I can relate to that. So now, what made your, your family move to the U.S.? Opportunity, man. I think, you, you know, the, the, the United States, um, for as great or as bad as the country, you know, people may say it is, you know, it still provides opportunity, you know. And, and where our family was in Jamaica, we, we really, um, 
you could, you know, I always use this phrase where we basically say you could see your ceiling. You know, you, you knew you couldn't grow beyond what you were seeing or feeling at that time in Jamaica. Right. You know, and, and I have very uh, ambitious parents and they wanted more for their life and they wanted more for their kids' lives. And so a big part of that was migrating to the United States for opportunity. And, you know, I'd say to this point, we've done a good job of taking advantage of that opportunity. That's good, man. So how was the transition from Jamaica to, to coming to the U.S.? Man, different. Uh, a lot of, lot of words could describe it. Uh, I was very, very excited. Um, you know, my, my parents were in the, the United States for at least three, four years um, while, while my brother and I at the time were, were back in Jamaica. So there was always this anticipation of yeah. moving, you know, so once we finally moved, we were excited. Um, you know, I wanted to integrate into the culture. Uh, I wanted to do all those things, but it was also different. You know, you may see someone that looks just like you, same skin color, but you're talking a different language, you know, and they look at you different. So, yeah. you know, I experienced that too, you know, just, just differences among people that look the same like me, you know, and that was an eye-opening experience. But no, overall, you know, moving to New York City, uh, we moved into a very predominantly Jamaican neighborhood, you know, so although you're in a different country, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're still among your culture. You know, and, and, and that helps to assimilate, that helps to transition, that helps to get settled into a new place. So, um, yeah, no, it was, it was a good experience. It was just Jamaica in a new world, so to speak. Right. So when, when you get to New York, of course, like you said, there's a lot of Jamaicans. Did you ever miss home then or no? <laughs> no, it was one of these things where, like, once you got to the United States, man, so many people from Jamaica want to make it to the United States that you felt like that was the, that was the, that was the crowning achievement. You know, I think, yeah, wintertime, you miss Jamaica because <laughs> you make it beautiful on the beach. <laughs> yeah, I bet. You know, but yeah, but you're also, you're also very much aware of, of the accomplishment of being in the United States because yeah. it's not given to, to a lot of people. Yeah. So how, how did you perform at, 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 at school? Because I'm assuming a Jamaican school and U.S. school are two different things. Yeah, yeah, they, they are different things. I, um, I, I, I wanted to respond immediately to your question by saying I was a smart kid, as if to say <laughs> that I'm not smart anymore. But yeah. um, no, I was, I, was, I was very much in the school, you know, growing up in Jamaica um, under sort of, you, you know, the... the the colonial, uh, you know, British, you know, empire schooling, right? Like you're taught well, you know, and, and structured and teaching and stuff like that in Jamaica. There's a, there's a high priority placed on education. The problem, okay. of course, is just resources and everything else, but people are deeply aware of education. And so I was very serious into my studies as a kid, you know, and that translated into my time in America. The problem though, I will say, and, and, and I don't think the American education system is as strict yeah. as the Jamaican education system. The difference is the abundance of resources and money, right? Like when I came to the United States, if for the first time, I realized that you cannot do your homework and you wouldn't get in trouble for it. Yes. Right. Or there would be no penalties. Right. I recall being in fourth grade, like, 
oh wait, like this guy or this person or this girl, they didn't do their homework and nothing's right. gonna happen. <laughs> this, is, this is, oh yeah, like, okay, I don't need to do that then, right? But prior to that, you homework and, and, and getting your work done is a requirement. There's just no, you know, there's just no way around it. So yeah, those are some of the bad habits I picked up in the American yeah, educational no. system. It, it, it's like that in South Africa too, man. You better do your homework. And I remember when I first came here, I remember one one kid in class taking a nap and the teacher did not do anything. I'm like, is that allowed, man? You can let somebody sleep in class? You know? Unbelievable. Or show up late to school or, yeah, you know, a lot of these things. And it's like, oh, that's allowed. And then you almost see, um, you know, behavior that is accepted. And right. then facilitate it, and then it just continues and continues and continues, you know? Yes. So, uh, yeah, yeah. In, in, interesting uh, revelation across both of our experiences, for sure. Yeah. So, now, why are you in Jamaica? I mean, in, uh, in uh, New York, did you also play high school soccer and club soccer? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, my, my, my introduction into club soccer my first club team was actually a Jamaican, you know, it was, it was a bunch of Jamaican kids uh, or mainly Caribbean kids, mainly Jamaican, but a bunch of other Caribbean kids right? Um, playing in the, in the Westchester County Youth League, you know. So I, I, I want to set the stage for people so they understand. It's like picture a bunch of immigrant kids, right, um, from a bunch of cultures, mainly Jamaica, playing against some of the wealthiest kids in the state of New York, <laughs> right? Westchester yeah. County is what undoubtedly one of the wealthiest counties across the United States of America, right? And they have a, a youth soccer league, like a bunch of other areas across the country, you know? And, and yeah, this youth team that was predominantly immigrant kids played in that league. And I will say our first couple years, um, we got our butts kicked because these kids were organized, man, but they weren't, you know, very good, <laughs> yes. but they were playing and they were organized, you know, and it was a lot of learning on just being a team and, um, taking all of our individual talents. Right. And then once we start to understand like how to play a little bit as a team, it was, you know, it was no stopping at that point in time. So yeah, yeah I played club ball, started, started in, in the Westchester County League and then did high school ball, you know, made, you know, the all city team and all these sorts of crazy things. But, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to play uh, in, in the Catholic high school league. So my parents, you know, funded my education through high school. I didn't go through, you know, public schooling in New York City. So part of that, you're playing in the public, you know, you know, the, the, the private Catholic high school league and the level probably I would say wouldn't, be the same as what you would envision as like a Martin Luther King high school, you know, where they had top talent everywhere, <laughs> <It's a> <laughs> you know, top talent every single where, you know, and a guy like me should have been playing on a team like that, you know, but when you talk about education and stuff like that, my parents really, really wanted us to have um, an opportunity at a deep education. So they invested in us going into the Catholic high school system, which, which was helpful. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like your, your parents also, you know, um, supported you to, to do well in school. 
that was the biggest thing, you know, that was the biggest thing. I would say um, my parents had equal influence on our growing up 50%, 50%. And I think how they divided the work was, you know, my dad took on the soccer responsibilities and he did a hell of a job at that, right. you know, and then my mom took on the education responsibilities and she did a hell of a job at that. But yeah, it was always sort of just locked into us, right? Like this is the path. It's, it's one of these two things or it's best to have them both, <laughs> right? you know, and it was just always reinforced. And I think probably then through college was where I really lost sight of the educational, the, the, the deep educational piece of it. And my focus went from 50-50 to probably 90-10, where I was like, hey, I want to be focused here uh, on, on being a professional soccer player and less on the educational side. Yeah. So how, how did you get recruited to go to Michigan? Yeah, great question. So um, through through my youth youth playing days, um, you know, I was able to go through the ranks. So um, from from that youth team I mentioned in in in, in you know um, in New York, I moved to a team in, in in New Jersey, and that was where I was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Kazbek Tambi. Kazbek Tambi was um, former member of the Cosmos. Um, former captain of the U23 national team. Just, I just got exposed to people who had played ball at the highest of levels in, in the United States, you right. know, and so getting introduced to that level playing, you know, alongside the likes of an, of an Aleko Eskandarian, you know, was a youth teammate of mine growing up. That, you know, that's a guy who holds a very special place in my heart because um, I've seen his development and now what he's doing in terms of, you know, the, the American soccer game, you know. So um, being around that introduced me then to uh, ODP and then getting into that system and, and was fortunate enough to make it all the way to, to you know, the U.S. national team. So I represented the U.S. at the U18 level, and then I also represented the U.S. at the U20 level. And, you know, just going through that experience and playing ball at that level, you're getting recruited by a number of schools. Right. You know, and for me, why Michigan? Michigan was the perfect blend at the time coming into college of what I was sharing with you before of that 50-50 split of education and soccer. Now, the soccer piece, someone is like, hey, man, Michigan is a young program. You know, you've accomplished all these things up to that point. Why are you choosing Michigan as opposed to like a UVA or, a, you know, some other school? And Michigan presented me at the time a platform to just showcase Knox Cameron. You know, as a young program, I wanted to feel like I wanted to help create something on my own. Yeah. Um, you know, and as I reflect on my life, that's sort of things that are projects that I've jumped into. I, I always view it from that lens. How can I contribute and leave like a meaningful mark? And, you know, I feel like I, I could have done that at Michigan while still get an amazing education. So, um, yeah, I was recruited. I didn't know much about the Midwest. You know, it's, it's, it's cold here in Michigan as I'm sharing. I still live here, yes. um, you know, but, but it's done well for me, you know, and it was a good choice as I look back. So when you got to Michigan, how did you balance uh, school and soccer? Because you, you talked about you wanted to be a professional player and here you are. You know, in Division One, you have to be a good student athlete to, to, to be able to play in games and stuff. 
Yeah, you asked the question as if I did balance. There was no balancing. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I, Boise. Yeah, no, I think that was the problem, right? It's it's um, not at that point in time being able to balance it, you know, because my focus became more and more on just being a pro soccer player, and I didn't understand how to push towards that meaningfully while also focusing on achieving like or maximizing my education and so yeah the schooling aspect of things just you know sort of fell by the wayside a bit uh, as my mind was really locked in on being um, a soccer player so I didn't do a great job of it that's one of the things I look back on and saying you know what man like of my undergraduate Michigan experience yes. there were aspects of that that I, I compromised you know and I can't get the time back but um, you know, I just wish I would have balanced it better. So what was it like to be coached by uh, Coach Steve Burns? Yeah, that, Coach Burns, he was the one that recruited me. Um, you know, he had a vision for a team. Um, you know, his vision, which was quite interesting, involved bringing in a whole bunch of black kids too, which was, which was um, it, it should be told, you know, and, and, you know, in the current landscape and climate. Um, that story should be told or even expanded upon, you know, to have the University of Michigan be uh, a varsity program in 2000 after, you know, having the team as a club program and your first uh, flagship recruit is, you know, a 6'3", 6'4", um, tall black kid with dreadlocks from, from Miami and Kevin Taylor. Yes. You know, to me, that says a lot. To me, that says that's brave. To me, that says that's uh, innovative thinking. You know, to me, that says that you're taking a risk. You know, and then you follow that up a year later, and then you're getting a six-three black kid from the Bronx um, as your second flagship recruit, um, alongside a black kid. You know, out of uh, Pontiac and Michael Turpin, right? Like those are your three biggest recruits in your first two years. Uh, of having the program at the University of Michigan. Yeah. So um, that shouldn't be lost on anybody. So now on to Steve Burns. Steve is, um, you know, I consider him a friend to this day. Uh, we butt heads on and off the field. That's just part of, you know, growing and holding people accountable, especially when you see that they have potential, you know, and he saw potential in me. And he always challenged me and, and tried to hold me accountable. And you know, there were aspects that I thought he could be better, you know, and just through, through just knowing him and, and, and being around him, you know, I've just learned a ton and I, I truly consider him a friend. That's good, man. So you did well at Michigan. You became an All-American and you also got a Big Ten uh, Player of the Year. What was that feeling like when you got those accomplishments? Yeah, they were goals, Boise, if I'm, if I'm being very honest with you. You know, everything out there I, I wanted to put my name on, you know, and I, I wanted to be, I was very selfish in that regard at times, you know, where I had a lot of individual goals that I wanted to accomplish. Um, you know, and that changes how my life is viewed now because they're very much team goal oriented as I'm leading, you know, teams and a bunch of people and all that. You, you, you always want to talk team. But as a member of a team at that point in time, yeah, I had a bunch of individual accomplishments that I wanted to accomplish, and, and you, you named a few of them. So, yeah, it feels good, 
um, I will say I was pushed throughout that process, you know, having teammates like Kevin Taylor, like, um, like a Michael Turpin, you know, guys that are putting up numbers, you know, you're looking, you're like, Hey, I got to bring it, you know, or Hey, in practice, I got to compete against this guy. You know, like that, that to me was, um, you know, how I was grading myself on a day-to-day basis. So I thank those guys deeply, you know, because they were allowing me to maintain my competitive edge because I know they were bringing it, you know, and then when you're jumping out there and then competing, you know, competing against guys like yourselves, right? Like, when I knew I was playing a Boise Kumalo, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to bring it. <laughs> right, yeah, you have you know. to bring it, you know? Yeah, I mean, you can't play, you know, and that's just pure respect, you know, and that's what it comes down to is just looking at someone, knowing what they bring, you know, and saying, man, I, I need to bring it, you know? Right. So at Michigan, you know, it sounds like you and Michael Turpin and KT, you guys pushed each other. Uh, I know uh, Michael Teppin is like the leading goal scorer and you are sure. second on the list. Do you sure. think that record is going to be broken of you guys scoring all those goals? <laughs> um, yeah, it's very much possible. You know, when I look back, I think the team in 20, 2010, you know, Suni Saad, Justin Miram, I think if those kids had, you know, four years like Michael had, um, you know, or three years or, you know, whatever the, the amount of years between injury that I had. Um, yeah, I think it would have been broken across those, those kids. You know, the, the program continues to grow. You know, kids are continuing to get better. So over time, I do see that, um, that happening, you know, but someone needs to have a strong first year. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that's, that's critical is to have a strong first year. What type of injury did you have? Yeah, so for, for most folks who don't know, um, you know, you and I shared time with the Michigan Bucks, and that's, uh, uh, um, you know, now a semi-pro team um, here in the Midwest that has a, a long track record of producing talented players at the professional level. But while I was playing with them through the summer, heading into my senior season, um, I, I basically ruptured my, my meniscus you know, and, and, and had a lateral meniscus uh, injury. Now, normally this is a standard injury for most athletes. You know, you do an arthroscopic knee surgery and you're, you're back roughly within three weeks or so. But in my case, it was a complex tear. And given how young I was um, and the ability to save as much of uh, the tissue as possible, Uh, the doctors at the university felt it was best to actually repair as much of, of the damaged area as possible, just, just to basically maintain long-term health and, you know, not, not, not having arthritis and all these types of things. <laughs> so having that repair, you know, you go from three weeks to basically three months. So I was three months of basically non-weight bearing, you know, and with that you have muscle atrophy. So, you know, you basically lose half of the muscle mass in your leg and, Long story short, I was, I was out a long period of time during that, my senior season, which should have been, you know, my, my flagship season should have been, you know, the going out season, you know, that was the season I was entering the year um, on the preseason, you, you, you know, All-American list, preseason Herman Trophy list, all these kinds of things. Right. So, yeah, I, w I was not able to fulfill the vision of the senior season as, as I had hoped. 
Now, playing for the Bucks, you mentioned playing for the Bucks. What was it like playing for the Bucks? Because I know at the time the Bucks brought a lot of top players in the country. So you were playing yep. with some of the top guys. What was that like? Oh, I loved it, man. It was competition. You know, that's probably the, the, the thing I, I, I love is competition, you know, and, and the Bucks bring the best of the best players, you know, and you know that you're going to have to compete for your spot. And that was exciting for me. And it also made the game easier when you're on the field with better players. <laughs> yes, yes, the game does you know? become easy. Yeah, I mean, it's like, my God, I'm like, wait, why am I, why am I not this, experiencing this at school all the time? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because at school, you know, on one side, you'd have Michael Turpin doing his thing. I'm playing in the center. But the, basically the other side of the field, right, like the, the, people can adjust their defenses if, 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 if two of the three players are strong versus right. if all three of the strikers, you know, or, 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 or the attacking players are strong. So, you know, you, you understand spacing as best as most people. And um, we had more space when we played on the Bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those were the good times, man, with the Bucks. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. Absolutely. Now, speaking about the Bucks, and I'm going to compare the Bucks to the national team. Was there any difference with the players? Like you said, you played for the under-18 and under-20. And the Bucks, some of the players are around that age. Do you think there was a difference between playing for the national team and the Bucks, player-wise? Oh, goodness gracious. Um, yeah, it's, it's so different. I, I would view it as like, uh, in the national team, you had more guys that could fit into a system, okay. right? Um, if you if you pluck each individual guy and just pluck them into a, some random place, I don't think they would have translated as well as the Bucks players, you know, because just on a pure individual level, the the, the I think on a whole the Bucks players were better, you know. In the national team, you're really taught a system and they're selecting guys based on that system, you know, so you're not seeing a lot of fluidity, you know, and how I was taught to play the game at the U18 level um, probably is not how I would teach myself to play the game now, <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you know, and a lot of it was system-based as I'm reflecting on it. Um, but yeah, it was just different, you know, and then the biggest thing I think we need to call out was just, it was way more diverse with the Bucks. You know, and, you know, I think since we're on a podcast and a whole bunch of years might hear this, I think it's important that you recognize and say the name, you know, Dan Duggan for, for bringing um, so many different cultures together, particularly Black people um, of a lot of different race and ethnicity together in the spirit of soccer, you know, and, and Dan did that. I was able to meet you, for instance, and a whole bunch of other guys you know, that, that look like me who appreciate the game like I do with the same experiences, you know. So that's why I have some of those fond memories on the Bucks because it was a different type of ball, you know, but it was the ball that I grew up sort of playing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and, and it brought us together, man. Just imagine I'm South African, you from Jamaica, you also had sure. other guys from like Kenya, you know. Sure. And, a soccer ball brought us together to, to share sure. these moments that we're talking sure. about right now. Sure. Uh, sure. Moving back to, to, to Michigan, uh, you graduated and then you got drafted. 
by the Columbus crew. How was that feeling? Where yeah, it, it was a dream come true. So it's actually an interesting um, piece of the timeline. When they drafted me, I'd actually not gotten done with school. So yeah. when, I was, when I was drafted, I was still had not graduated. I probably had, you know, 15 or 20 credits left. So in the back of my mind as a pro, I, I knew I still wanted to graduate. And that was like, like on the back of my mind. So as a, in my rookie year, I actually maintained uh, schooling you know, and actually took online courses at the University of California, Berkeley, to sort of bridge that whole experience to graduate. But yeah, man, getting drafted by the crew, that was like, you know, a dream come true. I, um, it probably wasn't the, uh, you know, the, the where I wanted to be drafted. I'll just leave it as simply as that. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, you know, getting drafted in the fourth round um, really coming off that injury I had mentioned. So after my senior season, you know, the one that I experienced the injury, I only played in about six games that year, you know, and, and you mentioned Steve Burns and, and folks like that. Those were folks that were coaching me on taking a red shirt season, actually. So actually coming back for a fifth year, um, really rehabilitating the, the, the knee properly and then having the year that everyone had envisioned, you know, but for me, Mentally, I was done with the, the school aspect of Michigan. And I, and I really wanted to just get going on a pro career. So I probably would say I entered the draft. I entered the combine, you know, a, a shell of who Knox Cameron as the player should have been. And that was reflected in the draft order, you know, but Columbus is very close to the state of Michigan, you know, and they, they knew of my playing career to that point knew of my abilities and, you know, they took a chance on me, um, you know, even while being instructed by their team doctor at the time to, to not make the draft based on where my knee was. Um, but uh, it was exciting. It was a dream come true, you know, and, and yeah, I was on the field with a lot of childhood heroes, <laughs> yeah. which, was, which was a fun experience for sure. What was it like competing against your childhood heroes? Oh my God. I mean, you know, I literally, I texted Edson Buttle yesterday, you know, that's a guy, you know, you talk about Jamaican and um, growing up in New York with, you know, Jamaican parents going through the, the, the youth soccer, you know, ODP system and all that. Like I literally followed that path of an Edson Buttle, you know, and well before I even knew who Edson Buttle was, people were saying, Hey man, have you met Edson? <laughs> you know, but he was, he was two year, two or three years older than me, you know, so around the time I was meeting him and reflecting on our story, you know, that was a guy I was sharing a locker with, you know, I was right next to, you know, being on the field with Robin Frazier, who's also Jamaican, you know, being on the field with Kyle Martino, right? Like these are, these are all people you hear of, see of, watched, played against, to now be there at that moment, it was, a, it was a good feeling. Yeah. So how long did you play pro for? Yeah. So in, in the MLS for two seasons, um, you know, I was battling the knee injury. Uh, that, was, that was a big, big thing for me. Uh, I had a strong rookie year, I would say. And then we had a coaching change where we went from Greg Andrulis um, to, to coach Siggy Schmidt, you know, and, and rest in peace, Siggy Schmidt. Um, two excellent coaches, uh, but Ziggy really had a vision for 
you, you know, his forward lineup, you know, and he drafted two young forwards and I was a young forward. <laughs> so that became challenge, challenging to find playing time, you know, and at that, at that two year mark, I was reflecting on my life. You know, if folks remember MLS at that point, MLS is a young, young league. Uh, you're not making a lot of money, you know, and, and I really had to think long and hard about my long-term sort of future, not, you know, not at that point finishing school, you know, the, the amount of money I was making. And, and I decided to really to hang it up after that point um, and focus on trying to have a, a more sustainable future. Nice. But to, to be honest, you really didn't hang it up because you also played for the uh, uh, Detroit City Football Club and you also played for uh, AFC and ABBA in the lower ranks. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, there was a gap there, man. There was a gap there where I was focusing on school, you know, and my career and and probably family. You know, those are three big things of a priority at my at, at that point in time. And then, yeah, when when I decided probably, you know, three or four years later from hanging it up in, in MLS and taking a break, you know, the 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 DCFC thing came along, you know, and that was interesting to just get get kicking the ball again. And that was an interesting project, you know, right. to be a part of. Uh, that was exciting. And then, yeah, having the opportunity to play with AFC Ann Arbor, you know, and, and just lend, lending really, you know, my soccer experiences in, in a whole new way, you know, and that was pretty fun, for yeah. sure. So now, uh, DCFC and AFC Ann Arbor, uh, Two rivalries. What do you think caused all this rivalry, all this <laughs> hypeness? Where did it come from? Well, you know, you know, proximity. I don't think there, 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 there's much in it. You know, 30 miles or so. Yes. You know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a lot of drive. You know, and you know, there's some of it from the origins. You know, with me having played in DCFC and now AFC. Um, but really, I, I, it's, it's a healthy competition. You know, it's two teams that aren't too far from each other that share the same vision. Um, you know, we compete on the field and we compete off the field, right? We're trying to get the same players. Um, we're trying to get some of the same fan base. You know, there's just a lot of things in the market that we compete with each other, you know, and it's a healthy competition and it's all fun. And, and, and we know those guys and we think um, very highly of them. Yeah. So you are currently a AFC and ABBA co-owner. How did that come about? Yeah, this is, you know, this is part of the other, one of the pillars, I think, in my life is trying to figure out, you know, how to network at all times, you know, and um, having lived in the state of Michigan for a while now, you know, it's really um, building up a strong network. And so when Jamie Amron, the founder of AFC Ann Arbor, was getting going, you know, he was talking to a lot of folks and building his network. And, you know, one of my dear friends, uh, Justin Herrick, um, heard about the project and you know he, he gave me a call and said hey um, I'm excited about the project but I'd be really really excited about the project if you'd be a part of it you know and so it was a phone call like that and then I just had to you know talk to my wife reflect on it because it required some investment <laughs> yeah. um, but then it also required some time you know and um, but it was two things that we were we were excited about you know sort of working on and that's how it came about. It's just really through friendships and vision, you know, and it's turned into something very, very successful to this point. So what, what is your role at the club? 
Yeah, that is an excellent question. Uh, it varies depending on where we are <laughs> during the season. So, you know, I will say, you know, from a, from a purely operational standpoint, I'm not as engaged as some of the other owners, right? You know, Bilal Saeed um, runs the club from a day-to-day -day basis. So he is involved all day, every day. You know, I think where my role and value is as our club looks um, long-term strategic focus, right? How do I help support the footballing side of things? You know, perfect example is, uh, and it's through, you know, your and I's relationship, how we were able to facilitate bringing, you know, our current head coach and general manager on board and, and Eric Rudland, you know, some of the early conversations with you even getting me familiar with Eric's pedigree for me to be able to then work alongside the other owners um, to really get everyone comfortable that Eric is the person for the future, you know, so it's really decisions like that, facilitating conversations like that. Um, that help push our club forward on the soccer side. That's really where I'm, where I'm ultimately focused. That's good. Where do you see the club in five years? Oh my goodness. Oh man, I've got a long runway to look for, for sure. So I think the biggest thing we need to be thinking about is having a stadium. You know, I, I think with our aspirations of continuing to grow up the U.S. soccer pyramid, we need to have our own dedicated stadium, you know, and you ask like, what's my role and vision for the club? Um, it's looking at something like that, you know, and there's a sub sort of group of ours that are thinking about that, are looking at that um, and seeing how it, how it fits and how do we get there, you know? And then the other piece is having a youth component, you know, no, no, no successful club, right? Um, is absent of a youth club. You need that. You, you, you need uh, a pipeline. You need a foundation to really grow from. And, you know, to date, we've just had the men's team and the women's team, but we really need to have a vision for um, the youth portion of AFC Ann Arbor. And so that's a next key area of focus that's going to position us for five years and beyond. So I would expect folks to really look out for um, movements with AFC Ann Arbor related to the, you know, the youth space, perhaps in some way, shape or form, because I think we have value to add there. And then we need a stadium. And so working with the city and, you know, cause there, 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 there's a lot of opportunity for business development and growth in Ann Arbor and, and achieving it through AFC Ann Arbor is a, is a, is a key piece. Okay. Now with everything that's going on right now, Nags, uh, you know, watching TV, uh, you watch sports, see a lot of guys taking a knee, uh, Black Life Matters. What's your take on the, on the movement? Yeah, the, the movement's needed. Um, the movement's real. You know, I, I, I share a lot of the same feelings that, you know, a lot of folks are, um, are fighting for, you know, because we've all felt it in some way, shape or form, you know, and, and it just speaks to where we are as a country, both in terms of how we're fractured, <laughs> yeah. um, but at the same point, how we are also creating new platforms to communicate and, and get our voices out. And I think that's critical and think people need to step back and have a deeper, just awareness of the fact that we can now feel more comfortable speaking about uncomfortable topics, you know, and I think, 
that those are fundamental pillars for change, which I think are even happening. You know, I don't think we're going to get rid of just like the grossly, um, just insensible activities in the country, right? Like, I don't think they're just going to go away. Police brutality, violence, I don't think it's just going to go away tomorrow, you know, but what I see right now in the, the, the platform and people communicating and, and awareness and activity is encouraging for what is to come. And I think, you know, you or me may not see it, um, but I do see very, very positive change and Black Lives Matter is a key piece of, of moving all that along. Okay, interesting. I want to ask you a, a, a last question. I've always wanted to ask you this. Sure. I'm scared, by the way. If you were to do it again, I know that you played for the U.S. national team and the Jamaican national team came and called. Would you go to the U.S. or would you go to Jamaica? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that was one of the things um, that I didn't follow in my normal pattern of thinking. So when, <laughs> let, me, let me explain to you, right? When I chose a Michigan that was a young program, it, it, you know, I felt it needed uh, someone like me to help move it along, you know, um, being a, a part of a young AFC Ann Arbor, uh, helping to, to drive value that way. You know, I think I could have been more impactful for myself and probably the Jamaican national team if I would have played with the, the Jamaican youth national team, you know, um, because I felt like I was just lost in the shuffle. Uh, I felt like I was just uh, a system player at certain points of my development in, in the U.S. You know, system. And, uh, and then I think another piece that's critically lost here, but it's not anybody's fault is just not having someone that looks like me coaching me at that level and on that platform. I think that's the biggest thing for, for young black players right now. It's not necessarily the inequity in sports and those types of things. It, this is soccer I'm speaking of specifically. It's yes. that young black players are being coached by um, people that don't look like them or, or understand them, you know? And there are so many points that were missed for me um, because someone couldn't connect to me or they didn't know how to talk to me, you know? And I see that fundamentally as one of the problems right now with U.S. soccer, right? Like why is Eddie Johnson not like part of some like critical part of U.S. soccer's development process? You know, why is, you know, Edson Buttle, why is DeMarcus Bees, right? Like why are these like prominent um, highly accomplished black players through the U.S. soccer system not having an impact or having an opportunity to impact the young black current American soccer player, right? They're still being coached by someone who does not look like them, who does not fully understand where they're coming from, which I think is a critical piece of coaching anybody is deeply understanding who they are. And I think that's a piece of the disconnect. Okay. A lot of questions keeps coming up in my mind because I'm enjoying sure, this maybe, conversation. Maybe we, maybe, maybe we need to have a part two of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we might have to have part two. Now, what would you say to a kid that's trying to follow your, your footsteps? Yeah, I think it's... it's, it's um, 
listen to the people who know you. Okay, I think that's critical. Along every part of the journey, there are people that know you and you got to listen to those people. I think that's critical. And then from there, it's you got to be, you got to, you got to, whatever you want, you got to be willing to know you're ready to do whatever it is to accomplish it. I think that's critical because challenges will come. And the idea behind the challenge is to test how hard you are willing to work to get beyond that challenge. That is just that simple. And if you see the challenge and accept it as the challenge and that you're defeated by the challenge, then you're not going to grow. You know, so those are elements that I reflect on that I would tell any young kid is, you know, embrace the challenges, right? And use people that you trust, right? To help to facilitate growing through that. I think that's critical. And then never stop loving the ball, man. If you, you know, if you love playing, you gotta, the genuine love has to be there. And there were parts of my development where I lost the love for the ball. Like I literally saw the ball and hated seeing the ball. And that was a problem, you know, and, and I never want to have that feeling again. And I don't want that feeling for anybody else. Yeah. Max, thanks for your time, man. We might have to do a part two here, brother. Boise, if we can find the time, man, I'm happy to. It was a pleasure to chat, for sure. All right. Thank you, man. All right. You're welcome. Yeah, bye. Thanks to Nux for sharing his story with us. Have a great day.